Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. May I ask you what you thought of the show? I thought it was really good. Um, I thought it was kind of very moving and uh, personal about someone reflecting on climate change, but not with the heaviness of that word, but just the experience, in her case, of losing winters. Um, I absolutely loved it. This is the the second time I've seen a collaboration with Noella, Jane and Kate, and I I love the way that Noella frames uh, her perspective, and she never kind of like delves too deeply into one particular narrative. We kind of skate along uh, a few of them, and that really... I don't know, it's really exciting to not ever kind of be able to just sink into one of them and kind of get this, like, mosaic of stories. Oh, I really enjoyed it. I had a little cry. It was really evocative and poetic and delightful. A very engaging performer, great storytelling, really held my focus. Terrific. And I also was really, I think I was crying by the end at the idea of kind of letting go of a season and not really even realising that that's what was happening, but was really appreciative that they kind of let us sit in that grief for a few moments because I think it's a really important step before we can do something about the fact that we are losing seasons. It made me emotional. It made me think of our cousin Jenny who works in Antarctica and she's there now. I think like just as I was talking to my mate outside, we're really thinking about like the contrast between this piece being set in 2019 bushfires and kind of longing for winter. I thought like temperature was like almost palpable in the room. I thought it was it was really beautiful. It was so exciting to see on opening night. They were just some of the responses on opening night to Kate Gould's bewitching production of The End of Winter a performance essay by Noel Janachewska. I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to a very special episode of The Stages podcast. This episode is going to chronicle the evolution of a production. Stages followed the personnel, performer, director, designers and playwright over a four-week period, checking in occasionally to ascertain the contribution of each to the production process and how they navigate the construction of a piece of theatre. 
To the uninitiated, it is a fascinating process as disparate parts collaborate under the guidance of director to create the magic of live performance. The deft conjuring of illusions and the seductive pull of storytelling transport us to other worlds and enlighten us through evocative text and passionate craft. Stages approached Kate Gall from the Siren Theatre Company as rehearsals were about to commence. The company she'd assembled combined the team who had previously presented Janicevska's Good With Maps, a production that toured extensively, and keen creatives early in their careers as theatre makers. The End of Winter is a new work for the stage that speaks to our current climate crisis. Written in the wake of the devastation of the 2019 bushfires, it asks, what is happening to winter? The response has been thrilling for the company with stellar reviews. Stage Noise wrote, The performance essay come monologue is beautifully realised by Jane Fegan. The End of Winter is often enlightening, often sobering and occasionally laugh out loud. Reviews by Judith stated, As crisp and clear as a frosty night, it is a theatrical experience of bone-warming depth and of hope. Through this episode, you'll be privy to my conversations with director Kate Gall, actor Jane Fegan, composers Nate Edmondson and Caitlin Crocker, lighting designer Becky Russell and playwright Noel Janicevska. The play ultimately ran smoothly, no mean feat in the present precarious theatre-making environment. Perhaps we didn't find the drama offstage that I'd anticipated, but what we did discover was the construction of a timely, powerful and compelling drama on stage. The End of Winter. Kate Gall, a new year and a new production. You're, you're quick off the starting blocks. It's only January. I know. Well, we've got to strike while the iron's hot, Peter. Tomorrow you commence rehearsals for a new show. What is it? OK, it's called The End of Winter, and it was written by Noel Janicevska. The last work I directed of hers was called Good With Maps, and we launched that, I think, in 2016, and it did its last tour at the beginning of 2021. On the road and in Sydney, really fantastic. The End of Winter is a different kind of um, subject matter, but a very similar style of show, a solo piece performed by Jane Fegan that we've been trying to get up for a couple of years now, but of course COVID has got in the way. And because we want it to tour again, as we did with Good With Maps, it's really important the show gets made and that we learn from that, we get some good critical reception, we have some good documentation, and then it's really possible to get that show out, you know, maybe over a longer period of time because it's a smaller scale show, which means it doesn't have the lumbering infrastructure that's needed with a much larger show. Is this a premiere production? This will be a world premiere, Peter. So this is a play that um, Noelle wrote several years ago. I'm good with maps was about a number of themes, I guess, exploration. You know, it was a feminist piece, but it also dealt with the death of her father. Um, The End of Winter focuses on the loss of seasons, particularly winter. It was written during the bushfires of 2019, but it also covers the death of Noelle's mother. Um, So it's quite a different piece, and it's about us losing something that we didn't know was ours to lose. And so it's um, a response to the climate crisis apart from anything else, and I think that has a great deal of resonance. How are you feeling about starting rehearsals for this show? Always a mixture of things, but slight trepidation, of course, you know, because the possibility of contracting COVID right now is actually very high. So 
um, it would be awful if, uh, well, in the first instance, if, if either myself or Jane went down. But, of course, we have quite a large team of people working on the show and nothing is created in isolation, as you know. I think that we're all aware that we have to take care of ourselves and be very mindful of that moving forward. It's a show that we've been working on really for, I would say, 18 months. During the first lockdown, we were lucky enough to have a one-week residency with uh, Critical Stages Touring, um, who gave us the opportunity to produce 15 minutes of material for their um, screening room. So it became a sort of online program. That was a great chance for the playwright to, to develop the work. And then last year, we were given another year, another week in the room, and we involved, started to bring in design and started thinking about it as a stage show. So it's been on our minds for a long time. We really feel like we're at the gates now. We want, we want to get out. I'm also conscious of audience appetite for going to small spaces and we'll be performing this at the Stables Theatre. Um, there are already some uh, numbers restrictions around seating there anyway. As I say, the need for us to get the show up and on is much stronger than our hesitancy to do so. Well, to put it into context, today is Sunday, January 9, when we're talking, and New South Wales has recorded 30,000 COVID cases. Now, the numbers have been quite high for the last week and they will probably continue to grow over the rest of this month. You're a brave girl, Kate Gould. And, of course, in the middle of Sydney Festival, we know that people aren't buying tickets in the same numbers as they used to and people are giving up their tickets to see shows and being very uh, particular about the kinds of places they want to gather. Um, in that context, uh, we're going to move forward day by day and see what happens. Well, let's move away from the darkness of, of that thinking of dirty old COVID. <laughs> Who are the creatives you've got on board? Okay. Well, I'm the producer and the director, and as I said, Jane Fegan is our esteemed performer. Uh, we have a young NIDA grad, Soham Apte, doing the production design. Uh, Becky Russell, who's our Wagga-based lighting designer, is coming on as our LD, and initially she'll be working remotely and will eventually come to Sydney and be in a room with us. Nate Edmondson is our composer. And, of course, he's just recently moved to New York and working remotely is something that we're all coping with now. Um, and so we'll be working with him, uh, I guess, online. Uh, we have um, a local uh, sound designer, Caitlin Crocker, who will be joining us to be the interface between the production and what Nate does. So that in itself is going to be a really uh, different and interesting process, uh, given that his timelines are different, his time span is different. But I think we can do it. And Fiona Harding joins us as our production stage manager. As producer, your of course, your theatre company, Siren Theatre Company, will be uh, presenting the play. And people like Nate and Jane, you work with quite frequently. And it's not uncommon for directors to, to work with the same team a, a lot. Is that because yeah. you, you develop a shorthand or a communication with each other? You, you know what you can, well, you collaborate effectively, I yeah. guess. Yeah, it's we, we are effective collaborators. I think the work does deepen over the years. Timelines are always short. But it means that we can have, be having conversations 18 months out before a show opens but still have it bubbling along and we know that each other is going, going to be in the same track and can catch up quite easily. There are lots of advantages, um, I guess, being you know, I'm very trusting and very confident that the work will be interesting. We're always challenging each other. But it's equally essential to bring in new people. So having young designers, I mean, I've worked with Becky as a lighting designer before, but this will be our first production that we've done from scratch with a new play, which I think brings in its own challenges. Yeah, so it's super important to have new voices in the room as well. And even when I've got a team of old hands, so to speak, um, I will always make sure that I've got someone 
whether it's an assistant director or somebody or somebody working in another creative department that can be a voice outside our little bubble because the worst thing is to become an echo chamber and just repeat yourself over and over again we we try not to do that obviously a a lot of folks say that the first day of rehearsal is like the first day of school is it like that for you (laughs) uh tomorrow will be interesting because ours will be partly in the room partly on zoom there'll be lots of questions about uh possibly about how we're proceeding given various scenarios um, we've got some people that have actually been working on the show for a lot longer than others. Uh, the, the task really is to get everybody focused to that first reading and just be able to hear Jane read the play and then work out where we go from there. Um, so, And then, of course, in the afternoon we'll have quite an extended production meeting because given the time, we're just after Christmas, we're in the new year, we're in a COVID peak, um, there's lots of things that we need to talk about in terms of our timeline and then basically hit the ground running and get it into the theatre as smoothly as we can. Um, but, yeah, like just even getting to the rehearsal space and getting all the technology set up, that's the first headache, you know, yeah, <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah. Is there much much difference directing a one actor play as opposed to a, a company of actors? Um, I think it's really different. When we've got a large group of actors, uh, which I guess is anything over one, um, you know, obviously having a regular a very regular rehearsal schedule with a very um, sort of specific timeline, usually in the same rehearsal room if you can, all of that's very important. You, you do need more time with more people. Um, when I'm working with one person, I find that working in 90-minute blocks is enough. It's, I mean, it's very intense. It's very intense for the actor. The amount of concentration and line learning and just creativity that's required, you find your own rhythm and then you tend to stick to it. It'll be 90 minutes or two hours and then you might have a break. You might come back several hours later or you might do two small 90-minute um, sessions and then leave it. Because I worked with Jane before in this format, we'll basically discuss this on a, you know, a roughly a day-by-day, week-by-week basis, see how she's feeling about it. She needs time to digest things. She needs time to learn lines. You know, being on stage by yourself, you need very particular kind of uh, preparations physically and mentally. So um, it's not like an eight-hour day usually, uh, but I leave all the space open uh, for what will work with the group. And, you know, who needs to check in with what, when, etc. We'll also use video quite a bit. We'll capture most of our rehearsals via video for those working remotely um, or those who are doing other things. So I'm pretty relaxed about that. Uh, I know where we've got to get to. It's how we use the time in a nutshell. So what are you aiming to accomplish in this first week? We're looking at a new version of the script. So it'll be interesting to chart the dramatic arc of that to get a sense of how we'll how the actor will relate to the design elements. Um, We'll talk about what those things can mean and how we can make meaning of that. There may be some ideas that bubble up around where we use sound, how we use sound, that discussion, definitely get that started. Um, We have already dipped our toe in the water of the sound world, but now's the time to really start focusing on that and going, oh, yeah, what do we like about that? What do we think works? I guess from a production point of view, making sure that our timelines are in place to get there for the bump in. And that would be one of my big achievements for this week on that side of things is to make sure that we absolutely know that we're going to get there on budget and on time. And hopefully by the end of the week, have a very clear idea of then how we're going to segment our rehearsal to get to those all important runs at the end of the third week before we bump in.
Noel, I'd like to start with the opening line of your play. The light is piss yellow, the air soupy, a brew of smoke and particles so thick it's erased the city skyline. I think we can all vividly recall the summer where there were days when we effectively thought it was the end of days. And certainly for those folk caught in the eye of the firestorms, uh, unfortunately, it was the end of days. Yes, it was kind of, I mean, that, that scene that I sort of describe about going out to get a coffee and it being absolutely sort of thick and yeah, unable to see sort of the, the skylight, unable to see very far ahead of you. That was exactly what it was. And that's why I've been wanting to do the piece about being a lover of cold weather. I thought, well, what if I start it with this, you know, the ultimate hot weather is this sort of terrible bushfire. So what if I start it in that and that kind of then gives me a course to say, look, our summers are getting longer and hotter and our winters are getting shorter and hotter. So do you consider this your response to, to climate change? I think climate change is going to need ongoing responses from us for, a, for the foreseeable future. But yes, it, that, that was part of it. But it sort of came from being a lover of cold weather and, and winter being my favourite season and Australian winters being in some ways a bit of an aesthetic excuse for a winter. The, the Australian winters in Sydney are not terribly cold, even though we sort of like to sort of have all the trappings of winter. We like the experience of winter, but in fact, a lot of the time you barely need a coat. So it was starting about being a lover of cold weather and wondered how I sort of ended up in Australia, which is odd. You know, perhaps I should have gone to Canada, not Australia, where they have serious winters. And thinking about what places I could go looking for cold weather. And of course, inevitably, once you start thinking about cold weather and winter and snow, you start thinking about climate change inevitably because everywhere you're looking, winters seem to be getting shorter and hotter. And I was aware as well that many ski resorts in Europe had sort of closed or was or abandoned with some victims of climate change. They sort of, there wasn't enough snow for a long enough period to sustain the last ski resorts as it once had. So there were all of those things. But I also thought about, about the, a personal loss of winter, but also about what will we as a society lose if we lose winter? Are we in danger of losing that season altogether in somewhere like Australia? And what will we lose if winter only exists in fairy tales and folk tales and in historical accounts and paintings of the past. So I decided to go have a bit of a sort of personal odyssey in search of winter cold, where I could go to. And obviously the first thing you did is I looked up, you know, could I go to Antarctica? And the two things that came up there, one that it, it was incredibly expensive, so out of my price range. And also that I thought, well, is that actually the right response? you know, having to go there ourselves. I mean, lots of, there were, and certainly until COVID struck, the number of cruise ships going there was increasing at a huge rate. People being taken there. And I sort of thought, well, you know, it's become pretty mainstream and I don't like, I'm perhaps not such a mainstream person. So maybe I'll look for something a bit different. Um, so I started looking around, was where, there somewhere that was cold like that, that I could go and again hit the same thing. They were prohibitively expensive. So I thought, okay, I'll go only to places I can go either via public transport or the imagination. So there's, that, they were the two strands. So I sort of charted a journey through various places, which included, you know, going to Threadbow and discovering it was chock-a-block with traffic. 
also going to a workshop on ice, the culture and politics of icebergs, going to New Zealand, South Island, which was the furthest south I could get by public transport. Also going to the, looking at some of those 17th century paintings in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, those big frost fair paintings of people, you know, the big panoramas of people on the ice. And just also reading things, like looking at journeys and thinking, and then inevitably questions, when you're looking at polar exploration, questions of gender come up. They're sort of very heroic, sort of boy's own, stiff upper British lip kind of stories. It's like, I think, you know, did women go there? Who, when did women start going to polar regions? So those stories came into it as well. And that sort of interspersed thinking about the meanings of winter and that winter is also associated with death and with loss. And so I tied them with sort of clearing up after my mother's death, clearing out the ha- her house in England. And that got, gets you thinking about inheritance and um, what, are you, what are you inheriting and thinking as well about what kind of planetary environmental legacy are we leaving for future generations? What are they going to inherit from us? So I suppose all of those things hopefully come together in the end of winter. Is it an easy process getting it out? Look, I really love doing research and it's very easy science to get what I think goes research fever, where you keep researching and researching and researching and putting off actually starting to craft the piece because there's always something else that I could read, look at, you know, dig around and find out more about. It's sort of, it's both pleasurable and, and it has its challenges as well. I, after Goodwiz Maps, I wanted to do another piece in a similar vein, a, a, a sort of monologue performance essay piece. So I had a bit of a, a sense of that. And um, I knew that I would be, Kate had asked me if I had something that critical stages had offered us a workshop. And I was working on the end of winter because I thought it would be nice to do another piece in this sort of vein. They're very portable, um, transportable. Audiences seem to really like good with maps and that form of intimacy. That one of the things I think that Kate says that I, I, I agree with is that she really likes the monologue because it only really makes sense in theatre. Like no one actually speaks as a long monologue. Um, and it's not a form that makes, that you really see. I mean, I know there's things like Alan Bennett's talking heads, but it's not really a form that television is, is terribly well suited to or film. So it works for the live context and it works works in theatre. I always think of writing something like that as a kind of composing. Is it uh, a difficult process or an easy process, a cathartic process to uh, to use your own experiences uh, in your narrative? Well, I guess because I think always whenever you're writing, you're always using something, whether it's something you've observed or something that's happened to you. You're drawing on your own experience. I think it's something that Doris Lessing said that I always really like that you can begin from a point of autobiography, but the moment you start writing about it, it becomes something else. And I think that's true. The moment you start writing about it, you're crafting it in some way. Sometimes you're not quite sure where sort of fact and fiction merge. So I, I don't know if it's cathartic. I mean, it was, because I was dealing with the things, talking about clearing out someone's house, you know, my mother's house after she died and what, what was left, what was inherited, little bits of it. It sits... Hopefully it sits quite lightly on the piece, but and that was that was far enough ago, so it wasn't really something I needed a catharsis from. It was, you know, quite a number of years ago now. But yes, I think I think a lot of writing you start from often a point of autobiography, but it evolves into it becomes its own beast. 
This is a story of winter. I catch the train to Macquarie University. The next place I went in search of cold is room 328 for a workshop on the culture and politics of icebergs. Icebergs? They're fresh water, not salt, so why not tow one from Antarctica to Perth and harvest it for drinking water? An entrepreneur proposed doing just that in 2019, and he wasn't the first, not by a long shot. There were 19th century schemes to steamboat icebergs to India and Chile. Later plans involved hauling them north to supply thirsty regions and make the desert bloom. Back in room 328, we're seven people. Organiser, visiting professor, three PhD students and two of us from outside the uni. Seven people talking ice cores, gender and the metaphorical landscape. Once upon an iceberg. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> Jane Fegan, it must be, uh, must be great to be back on the boards again. It's wonderful. What do you enjoy most about being an actor? <laughs> That's a great question. What do I enjoy most about being an actor? I, everything. I mean, no, that's not true. There's terrible things about being an actor. What a stupid profession to choose. What I enjoy most is the opportunity to tell the stories and to work on these stories, to to research stuff that I don't know anything about, to, to be opened up to other worlds that I haven't necessarily thought about or being exposed to. Uh, yeah, just joyously diving into that world of the imagination and doing that with other people and having that um, collaboration and that uh, joy of uncovering the depths of stories and, and, and finding ways to tell those that might be magical and theatrical and um, special for an audience to come and share that with is my great joy. It's such an incredible thing to do a production and it's so wonderful to think about um, the connections that you make inside that as well, that, the, that you you become very close to those people very fast in a way that I think people who don't work in the theatre probably haven't um, necessarily experienced in other workplaces. Yeah, that, yeah, and perhaps obviously you do experience it over a period of time and if you're, you're with colleagues for a long time and you, you get to know each other very well, I think we do that in a matter of weeks or days sometimes, um, and then you, you feel very much a part of each other's lives. And then, interestingly, you might not see each other again for a very long time. And, of course, the kind of post-show blues is a really real thing, um, that feeling of missing that particular uh, group of people and that particular connection is, is quite uh, peculiar as well. You're a graduate of Theatre Nepean. Yes, it was such a fantastic course. What a great school. Yeah, I, it was a thrill. It was a, th- a three years of wonder. I actually drove out to Penrith the other the other night and I went on a little trip down memory lane briefly of <laughs> those years. Um, that was a really terrific grounding and uh, place of exploration. So The End of Winter is a one-person play. It's a, an interesting task. It's so different from doing a play with others. And I didn't think about that the first time I jumped up to do it. I feel like the the rehearsing is 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 not is uh, is great because you've got the director and and uh, stage manager and possibly assistant director and other people in the room um, you know creating uh, the the atmosphere of the show with your sound and and um, and so forth compositions and lights and all of that and set and costume so there's a there's a great collaboration that happens initially and then um, 
And before that, there's a lot of line learning on my own. Yes, uh, that's not so fun. And then there's yeah, the uh, the the kind of the process actually of getting ready to go on stage is the is the most lonely and coming off is is the weird is the weirdest thing or the most um, different from uh, another production where you're with other people. I found that <clears throat> that's that process of putting makeup on and getting ready was like oh it's just me okay cool I'll just be doing my thing here and um and that's quite peculiar but you know it's really interesting but it's it's a strange feeling and and yeah there there definitely are sort of lonely moments where you think okay that'd be it'd be fun if someone else would come in and play now thank you but yeah it's good so how do you go about learning lines with an extensive monologue a little bit at a time Peter (laughs) <laughs> a little bit of time. Uh, I we this one, this particular one, Noel has actually. Um, there are, are clues to kind of the chapters, if you like. Um, there's, there's, it's not. A, there's no scene breakdowns per se, um, but lo, but much like a, a play with scenes, I guess where you tackle a scene at a time or however you go about it. For me, I I just divide it up. Um, I set myself this time the task of learn, trying to learn a page or so a day before going into rehearsal, at least becoming familiar. So when I say learn, I mean having a good sort of stab at it. It's certainly not in my body or, or you know, at my fingertips, but it's f- very familiar, which is great because my, the lesson I learned last time was that I think if you don't do that sort of preparation, the the possible trap you fall into is that opening night and and the subsequent few nights become a memory test rather than a performance. I mean, when in the initial learning before I hit before we got on the floor, I really tried to just learn it in a quite a rote, weird way, which was very funny because then when we did our first table read on Monday, the first day of our rehearsals, I felt like it was coming out like that. It's like, this is terrible. Like you've got to put some meaning back into this now. I mean, obviously there are there is meaning because that's the only way you can connect the thoughts, but it was very monotone, if you like, initially, because I didn't want to do too much of that before getting on the floor or before hearing, you know, Kate's ideas or um, anything else that Noelle might have wanted to feed in at the beginning of rehearsal. So I've already got a few little line changes. That's good. We always love those. As we go. You've worked with Siren Theatre Company many, many times. Uh, just between you and I, because she won't hear it, what's Kate like yeah. to work with? <laughs> She'll totally hear it. Um, look, I I wouldn't have come back for my, I don't know what it is, I was trying to work it out the other day, but it's at least eight uh, productions with Kate. And and I, obviously I don't think, I, why would I do that if I didn't love it? I, I actually, uh, Kate is a great joy for me to work with. I love her passion for every project she takes on. I love that she has a great breadth of interest across the platform of theatre and so she brings all of that in and she doesn't have a a way, if you like, or a a sort of favourite thing. Well, she probably does have a favourite thing, but she brings a whole bunch of other qualities from opera or, um, you know, this this is very much a, a... an essay basically a a kind of spoken you know lecture if you like in in a sense but of course made into a theatrical event all of that adds a great um excitement to a rehearsal room because it's not you there's not a formula Uh, it doesn't feel like there's a formula it feels like there's a great uh body of work to put to to draw on a great interest breadth of interest and also Kate just tells it like it is and that is a very um refreshing and uh, 
uh, I, I really like working that way. I just want you to say, I don't know what you're doing, do something else, um, rather than um, have someone have to be careful or, you know, couch anything in, in sort of cotton wool to, to, to help actors feel okay. And obviously that's part of having worked with Kate over many, many years now. We, it's, there's a lovely shorthand to all of that as well and there's a, a great respect and acceptance of each other and how we work. And so it's just all of those things make it uh, a very easy and fun place. However, I would say about Kate, whilst she does work with uh, some of the same people very often, she always works with new people. So there will always be someone new, if not more than someone, you know, many new people on board. And that's another thing. Um, Kate always flings her net very wide for, for when she's looking for people. And I think that's in some ways the best, well, I don't know if it's the best combination, but it's a very effective combination where you've got kind of some people who have a, a foundation of um, experience together and then there's new people in because that always shifts that relationship anyway. The most famous iceberg is the one that sank the Titanic. The largest one ever recorded came from the Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica. The US National Ice Centre, the body responsible for assigning iceberg IDs, called it B-15. Most of the time, icebergs sit there doing their own thing, bobbing about, slowly melting. But they also help us speak about deeper reservoirs of meaning. In the workshop, we discuss polar science. What does it look like? Male, youngish, techie. Yet Antarctic geography features a host of female names, left behind wives, crown princesses, mythological figures. And for a long time, women were present in name and cartography only. 1767, Jean Beret, disguised as a man, travelled in the sub-Antarctic as a member of Bougainville's expedition. Six years later, when French naval officer Kerguelen de Tremarec sailed south, looking for the fabled Terror Australis, his teenage girlfriend Louise Seguin came too. Their voyage was a failure. The only discovery, a freezing, inhospitable suite of islands that Kerguelen called Desolation. There's a lot of desolation and disappointment in Antarctic naming. Dismal is an island, and Dismal is a mountain range. Throughout the 19th century, wives and daughters accompanied their menfolk aboard whaling and sealing ships to the outermost reaches. Their presence recorded as footnotes in captain's logs. But before they went south, women went to the far north. I'm a bit of a blathermouse. You might have to shut me up. Oh, that's okay. I, I, I have the edit button uh, later on, so, <laughs> so that's fine. <laughs> Becky Russell, lighting designer of The End of Winter. We're about four days out from opening night. Uh, yeah. Do you think everything's on track in your department? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's feeling pretty good. Um, I had the great privilege of being able to see a good six or seven runs. Because I, I live regionally, so I came to Sydney um, with the intention of just being in the room as much as possible because things shift and, you know, being a new work particularly too, that, you know, it's just how they choose to go about it. So um, it's been really great to be able to be in there, coming with some initial ideas, but in allowing them to focus in as, as the rehearsals have developed and the runs develop. So have my, so has the vision. So I feel really 
more more prepared than often I am allowed time to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice to hear. Um, Theatre is a collaborative art form. I, I assume you've been with the show from the ground floor? Uh, I came on uh, post the development. So I came on just for this actual production version rather than the developments I did last year. So um, I've had the script, though, for about six months. So I've been aware of it and been connected to it, but not through its very initial developmental stages. Can you describe for me how you work with those other elements of design and and the director in order to create your vision? Because, uh, as I said, it's collaboration and all of those disparate parts need to to merge together to create the magic that we as the audience experience. Absolutely. It's got to be of the world. And what's great with working with Kate is she's very clear, um, I think, um, in her vision. So it's, it's, I find it easy to sort of be able to work and to support that. And, um, and certainly, yes, yeah, sound particularly in this one is, is very much a scene maker um, and sort of sets the stage. And um, so, so to make sure that they were inter, interweave well, I think is correct, but that's also been helped by um, having lots of earlier sort of creative meetings and having the initial stages. So we're talking the vision that we're talking about and how we're seeing things so people are sort of aware of how everyone else is sitting with it. So I think that that has helped sort of keep that to come together. But certainly when it gets to the plotting, things like the music sort of coming in and, and light shifts and all that sort of stuff, the timing of that working together um, will, will be is key to sort of allowing it to remain in the one world and tell the one story. Beyond that, it's um, I think in this particular case, it's a little easier rather than when you're working with AV and things like that as well with other other visual departments, it becomes something else again. And certainly um, talking about design in regards to the visual landscape, having a conversation early on about integrating lighting into the set and things like that um, I think has been really important and it's been a good opportunity to be able to, to do in early stages so that we're all clear from the start. What, what are the clues that you look for when you're first reading the text? that will will trigger important information for you when uh, when you design it might be your color palette it might be an atmosphere yeah. that you're trying to create uh um i think every project's different um the, the oh, there's always the initial read so it's sort of the vibe and the feel you get from it the energy it's sort of it's it's giving the, the words are giving you um i had the privilege of seeing and and um, bits of being an audience for um siren's first work with noel the good with maps. So um, I did understand her tone and her style before coming into this project, which is why I was so excited to be involved. Um, and, and, and hers is a very nuanced language. So for me, that talks very much then of a nuanced lighting scale. We're not talking big, brassy, bold. We're talking subtleties, qualities of white, um, pastels, things like that, because that's what the language and the style of the writing, I think, um, demands because um, it's a, it's very elegant. So we want to create that sense of elegance. So so for me, that's a very big uh, trigger is how the, the, the sort of the language and how the language is used. Um, secondarily, I think it's, well, in this particular work, it's not about creating scenes. Sometimes, you know, you get into a show and it's like, okay, we're here at this location at night. Now we're here in the day and we're in the, the office. This is, it's non-locational really in a lot of ways. It's a lot of, it's a big storytelling journey. So in that regard, it's, um, it, there's more scope um, to sort of be, I think, a little, to, to play with that subtlety, but also to, to then delve into the emotional com- content and, and help bolster that and, and, and then be, use locational devices that are like here we are in the office, but they're more abstract so it's actually a more fun way, I think, to play 
um, with lighting in this sort of a script. Um, so, for example, we have this constant conversation which we keep coming back to about Captain Scott down in the Antarctic. So there, there are ways in which we'll we'll create, we'll revisit certain types of states when we're talking about that to sort of allow the audience to to make those links, you know, to 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 travel through um, the piece with us. So, yeah, it's 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 a fun. It's, it's, it's more creative. I feel it's a more creative opportunity than your standard, you know, external night, you know, internal office, whatever. <laughs> uh, just picking on picking up on a word that you, you mentioned in storyteller. Your role is storyteller. It's not just a matter of shining light so that we can see the action. You are a part of that, that narrative communication oh, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's like you said, everything has to work together and it is all about telling the story that we've all come together to tell. Every part it adds an element of communication to to an audience to allow them to appreciate it and to allow them to appreciate in the way that we're guiding them to appreciate. That's why you need a director to have that vision, to be able to, to feed out to the wider sort of creative um, group to, to be able to, to do that, I think. Yeah, to, to me, I've, it's something I've always loved about lighting particularly um not only do not only do I get to paint the air with color um I also get to um be an invisible character in this in the space that allows the the world to to also be be more real so it, it it's a I really love being a I, I can't personally be on stage I'm terrible I would corpse I couldn't act to save myself but to be able to express emotionally through my lights on the stage is a, it's a quite a privilege I, I, there's nothing worse than um, upstaging the action with your flashy lights or your, your over-the-top sound. I think it, the, 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 the skill is to try and be as invisible as possible but actually still definitely have a presence that if it wasn't there, it would be no, noticed, but the fact that it is there isn't necessarily noticed. <laughs> <laughs> is it easier yeah. or more challenging to light a more intimate space like, like the one at the stables? It's just different. Um, mm. I come from, I, you know, I cut my teeth at places like La Mama and um, and the storeroom down in Melbourne that no longer exists um, in those sorts of in, smaller independent spaces. Um, and so for me, it was a bit like coming home to this because in more recent years I've worked regionally and in the local regional venues and they're much larger, they're cross-art kind of setups and they're, they're sort of much bigger conversations. Yeah, and, and for that, there's there's things that make it easier in those spaces, but also to create that sense of intimacy in those spaces is quite hard. And this is an intimate piece. So I feel like the space itself, although unusual, it'll, it just makes you look at it differently and in, engage with it in a different way. And as I say, it's like coming home a little bit for me coming back into a space like this. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> so I haven't plotted yet. So ask me after the plot. <laughs> <laughs> I might have some, some other issues, but we'll see how we go. I th- I'm feeling pretty good. How did the week go for you, Kate? Look, week one has been great. It's always good to get back into the rehearsal room. I mean, Jane and I have a very long-standing creative relationship, I suppose, so it's like picking up an old conversation. It is a, it's a curious kind of text to put onto a stage. So the big question about why is it on the stage, how does it go onto the stage, are all the sort of biggies. So we're sort of sketching it out geographically so then we can go back and really mine into the detail. Putting it onto the stage needs to be as sophisticated as the writing in a sense. So we'll definitely use the time wisely. Do you feel that you accomplished what you set out to do in week one? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I was extremely pleased with uh, the energy that Jane brought to the room. 
it's it's very it's quite heavy on detail, uh, scientific detail. This piece, but it is also very strong on more intangible emotions such as grief and loss, because of course it also charts the death of the writer's mother, and those things need less words. But I guess I'm curious artistically how we can lean into the themes of loss without being too heavy-handed. Given that the play is also about climate change, it is quite hopeful in many ways and uh, resilience is another strong theme that's really emerging. So balancing the grief, loss and resilience themes are going to be, I guess, my uh, area of contemplation for the next week, I would say. Yeah. I love to work with designers who can challenge us to do something in the room that perhaps they haven't seen. Obviously, we're going to be responding to Noel's text in the first place, and I think that discussion that I will have with Nate tomorrow might even help shape some of the staging, although we've been able to get through quite a bit of it. So in terms of where where we might pause, where we might slow down, uh, I guess the more musicality of the text is I'm starting to get a sense of how that's uh, shaped by the writer. I'll report back and I guess then we'll talk about themes and how we might use those so, yeah, look, definitely a collaboration because, again, I've worked with Nate quite a bit. So he will bring in ideas, I will throw in ideas, and something then will happen, and then we'll just have a look at it. We'll try it in the room. Does it work? No. Let's throw it away. Yeah, it does work. Oh, that could work. You know, let's try it to make that work, etc. Yeah. Oh, it's always a challenge working with a stage design for a piece that is actually quite abstract the plays dealing with quite abstract themes. Um, it's hard to, how do you personify or dramatise climate change on stage if you're not writing a narrative drama, for example? How do you talk about loss? How can a design resonate into the, into the thematic world? Um, so I always find it challenging to work with a design first up, um, if I haven't designed it myself, obviously. And I'm working with Soham Apt, who's a young NIDA grad and has um, really, we've really focused down on a beautiful uh, concept uh, with a very singular element on the stage. And so in the back of my mind all the time is uh, where is Jane in relation to the object? What are the audience reading at the moment? That will become more detailed as we progress, but it's not nagging me, but it's definitely in the back of my mind because uh, objects on stage and an environment really dominate once you get into the theatre. Well, Nate Edmondson, it's lovely for stages to cross uh, live, so to speak, to New York. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Your big New York adventure has begun. How's it going? Yeah, it's going well. It's been um, pretty full on so far, um, kind of hit the ground running and haven't really stopped. But uh, yeah, pretty amazing. We're about to close up Winnie the Pooh here at the end of the month and then take that over to Chicago. And meanwhile, we've got our other talking bear, Paddington, is about to go on tour starting in texas so yeah it's kind of all happening now the end of winter is uh the play that you're currently working on for for siren theater company um although it's say a one-person play i would suspect that the sound design can be considered another character i think i always have a rule and i always say this to anyone that i'm mentoring or lecturing on uh, sound design or composition that with any kind of monologue, any kind of one person play, you've sort of got the choice of all or nothing. You can either 
let the text do all the work, which is often, you know, the right choice, uh, or you can choose to support it with music. But if that's the case, uh, you kind of lock yourself into doing all of it with music. It's very hard to just be sort of bitsy with a show like that because you don't have things like scene changes and other actors entering and exiting and things like that from which to kind of uh, punctuate the music and shift in and out of things. You sort of have to set up a, a language and a, a, I guess a pattern that kind of repeats throughout the show. You don't have the same leeway to just kind of dip in and out. Uh, so with Good With Maps, we had a very kind of full score that, that underscores the entire show, more or less, um, and is very much in tune with the dialogue and with Jane's rhythms as an actor. And so it's going to be a similar approach with End of Winter. It's a little bit different musically in that the music is probably slightly less uh, structured and um, I guess uh, rhythmic is perhaps the best word. Um, but yeah, will be kind of a very present uh, and constant part of the piece. Having established uh, that that score for for Good with Maps, which was created by the same creative team, playwright, director, actor, and and composer, are you able to borrow from that score particular themes or motifs that you can use in the End of Winter? Um, not so much uh, specific kind of musical ideas, but certainly, uh, you know, it informs a lot of, of our understanding of what we can and can't do with the score and, and, you know, how it has to have that relationship with the text and, you know, where we need to get out of the way to allow the dialogue to do its thing and when we kind of can be there to support the action or, or kind of build upon the text. Uh, so it's definitely taught us a lot of really important lessons in that sense. I, I've kind of strayed uh, from Good With Maps in the sense that I'm, I'm trying not to kind of reuse any ideas. Good With Maps was very, well, similar to the end of winter in a sense, was very specific in the kind of environments it talked about. It sort of jumped between England, which is still a common thing in, in end of winter. Uh, but then, you know, on the other side of it was the Amazon and, uh, you know, the kind of hot, sweltering Amazon jungle, which uh, had a very different kind of instrumental palette, I suppose, uh, to End of Winter, which is very much about kind of Arctic uh, continents and um, the cold and those sorts of landscapes, which, uh, you know, again, have a very different kind of sound. So in that sense, it, it's going to be quite, quite new compared to what we heard in Good With Maps. Nate, how challenging is it uh, composing from afar? I imagine technology is our friend, but um, are you striking any challenges not being able to be in the rehearsal room? Uh, I think the biggest challenge uh, is probably just the issue of time, really. I, I mean, it's actually easier to do it in reverse, composing from Australia to send uh, over to the US is great because you're a day behind in the time difference. So you sort of have a bonus day for any deadline uh, or, you know, so it feels anyway. Whereas here, you know, I'm always kind of, everything's lagging by 16 hours. So by the time I get something sent out, you know, I'm 16 hours behind where um, you are back in Australia. So that's a bit of a challenge is just kind of keeping up, particularly in, you know, what's a relatively short rehearsal period. Um, and, you know, I guess not being in the room and not being able to kind of directly tap into those energies and rhythms and just, you know, the kind of creative atmosphere of building a show is definitely something that I mean, it may not be a hindrance, but it, it definitely makes it a little less, um, 
you know, easy to kind of get into the vibe, I suppose. Um, but I tend to work fairly cinematically in the sense that I will, even with Good With Maps, I'll take away footage of the show and I'll, I'll take that back into my own space, you know, in the evening after the rehearsals are finished uh, and kind of score it like a film. And because the timings have to be so tight, tightly matched to Jane and kind of natural pace, um, it, it tends to be the best way to do things. So in that regard, working remotely via video isn't all that dissimilar to how I would do it back uh, in Australia if I was there. But yeah, just not having that same kind of rehearsal room vibe is definitely, you know, something that I, I miss being able to have. But luckily I've worked with Jane and Kate so many times previously that we very much uh, understand each other. And uh, yeah, I think I can kind of uh, fill in the gaps with my own imagination, thankfully. <laughs> so is, is it like a, a tailor's approach in that you are crafting the score as the production takes shape? Uh, a little bit. Before any of that happens, I kind of usually write when you're doing a first read, which in this case we've had a couple of years of development on this text, which I've been a part of, which is also a great way of kind of um, getting on top of the long distance composing thing. We've got a bit of a head start there. But yeah, I'll always start during that first read. I'll, I'll be listening to Jane uh, speaking the text and I'll kind of highlight passages in the, in the script that I think could support underscore and make any kind of specific notes of where I think there might be a particular sound effect or, or a particular moment that needs to be heightened. And so that kind of gives you the every possible point that you might use. And then you'll kind of start to narrow down um, as you build the score as to what actually is needed and where, you know, it might be one step too far and you might kind of pare back on a particular section. So, yeah, usually kind of start purely from the text and then from there it's about shaping it to Jane's particular timing, to, you know, Kate's staging, whatever else is going on in terms of lighting and um, other elements. Uh, and, yeah, you kind of shape it that way. Um, but, yeah, definitely I would say, 75% of, of the work in determining where things are going to be scored will happen like right on day one for that first read, purely off the text rather than any kind of blocking elements. So, Jane Fegan, four days till opening. Have you learned it yet? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have learned it. I'm still going over it every day, of course, as I will do for the whole run. Um, but, uh, yes, it is there. It is learnt. It's a lot of words. Four days. Is it four? I don't even think it's that many. Oh, three Wednesday days. Wednesday night, I think. Three I've days. That's yeah. right. <laughs> We're now chatting on Monday. And, um, yes, sorry to give you that flush. <laughs> no, that's fine. Actually, four days would be good, but that's all right. So how are you going to pace yourself over the next three days to ensure that you're in the right form for opening? Uh, I'm not, Peter. I'm just going to roll with it. I think um, I tried to sort of rest this weekend and it didn't really work. So I went, that's okay. I think it doesn't matter what you do. Opening night, you're always exhausted. And I think that's actually the right place to be. Because it takes the edge off just yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm just, I'm going with that. And I, I, actually, I think it'll be okay. Um, the others, you know, take good care of me in terms of me being the only cast member. So it's, um, you know, they're kind of aware that there's only so much your brain can do in over however many hours. So I think it's okay because things are quite broken up. So 
Yeah, we'll see. Do you experience that um, that, uh, that that fear that happens probably two minutes before the curtain rises, then one minute? You think you can be as prepared as you like, and you absolutely know that you know all the text. But isn't it extraordinary that that fear that takes over, and you think I can't do this? Where's my script? What, what what's the first word? And then you step out there, the lights go up, and it's all there. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, thanks for reminding me of that. Um. <laughs> I know. I, I think every actor or a Absolutely. lot of actors go through that. It's just an incredible psychology that... Um, and you wonder, why do we do this? Oh, totally. Look, mine starts well before the two-minute mark. But I um, I have a routine and I have a routine there to kind of deal with those, those nerves and uh, all that nonsense. There's only been a couple of times uh, where I really thought, I can't go on. Um, once was in a Shakespeare actually with Kate and I I thought I, I don't know why I'm doing this really don't know why I'm doing this and another time was down at Marigong for a version 1.0 play and I yeah I, I kind of thought I could just walk back down that corridor to the dressing room grab my handbag and just go and then the music started and I had to I went on and then as you say you just go on and then you do the show and it's fine but but the payoff is that tremendous elation <sighs> at the end yes. when you have got through it and yes. the audience are showing their appreciation absolutely look it's great and and you know hopefully there's some enjoyment somewhere in between as well um, in terms of you know once you get into the story and telling the story um, there's joy in that this is a really different form because most of that joy comes from sharing that with the other performers on stage and putting your energy into um, those people. And this one, of course, is... It, and, of course, you're doing it for the audience, but this one is just straight to the audience, so it's a really... You you know, you are all my other characters, mm. um, which is a, a really different flavour for the performer. So you stated that you will continue to look at the script through the season. That's how you maintain your performance. Do you continue to refine and tweak and, and change and detail? It might be just a, a nuance, but... Definitely. I think um, absolutely. And even in the last production that uh, I was doing where I was with other people on stage, we, we talked about it all the time. Um, and, and even just before going on to scenes, we would say, you know, we might say, oh, last night such and such happened. Why don't we try this tonight? Or, yeah, so absolutely it's evolving all the time. I mean, that's part of the joy, isn't it? And all of the time, something happened for me the other day in rehearsal or actually in the middle of the night, but after a day of rehearsal where where lots of things just um, slotted into place. And often that happens at the end of a run or, you know, <laughs> three quarters of the way through a run where you suddenly go, oh, that's what that... You know, your body gets it. Of course, your mind already is on that track, but something drops in in a different way. And so it's great to keep refining through a performance, of course, absolutely. The Stables is a very intimate space. Uh, you've played there a few times. Uh, the audience are practically almost on top of the stage. Mm. And that's thrilling for an audience. Um, how do you find it? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I enjoy... Um, that immediacy and I enjoy the the smallness of that I enjoy the shared the, the very um, clearly shared experience of that obviously it doesn't matter if you're in a 2,000 or a 10,000 seat place that you of course you're still sharing that but it you can't feel it as immediately as you can in a space like the stables which is just 
Well, you're very exposed as well, aren't you? You're very exposed, yes. But as as is the audience, because I'm sure that you often clock somebody who might be having a snooze or hear something that somebody said to somebody else. Absolutely. Hearing stuff is is always really interesting and sometimes um, wonderful for kind of feeding on the energy of the play anyway, whether you've got a fourth wall and you're pretending the audience aren't there or whether you're actually speaking to the audience. Both can be joyous to hear what people are saying. Um, you know, if it's to do with the show, if it's something else, that's fine too. Um, look, I have decided long ago that uh, there have been times where I've fallen asleep in things that I am loving. There are things, you know, I've gone to an afternoon or something when I've just been really busy and I have been really enjoying a performance and have to fight that terrible feeling of falling asleep. So I, I just have decided long ago not to take it personally. And also I have had times where perhaps I haven't been enjoying something as much as I thought I would. And it's a nice time to have a nap. So I say do what you need to with regards to that. And I try really, I, I might notice it. And of course you sort of clock that and think, oh, oh gosh, is it boring? And then I quickly move past. I just go, no, you've fallen asleep and stuff. And as long as there's someone <laughs> engaged, which, you know, there will be. I hope um, that's all you have to. Yeah, you can't second guess or be carried away with um, uh, trying to read what is actually happening. Where it might be something completely different. I mean, you're in a comedy. Just because people aren't belly laughing doesn't mean they're not enjoying it. They, they might be smiling on the inside. Totally, yeah. and <laughs> you know, you get that all the t- you get that any time, and you have different audiences. Again, just with the show we just did we'd have a really raucous kind of audience and loud and calling things out and and doing whatever, laughing and gasping and whatever. And then the next night have, you know, absolutely quiet and think, oh gosh, it's just, oh gosh, it's gone, oh no, it's gone horribly wrong, you know, and then I get off and everyone's like, oh my gosh, that was great or whatever their reaction is. Um, that's that has had them totally engaged, but you just, you tried to, you thought that you were reading something from their reaction so best not to try um i mean it's nice you you just of course when you're looking at the audience you can see if if um you know if people are, are fidgeting or if that you know something else is going on but you also don't know what might be happening for that person in terms of you know are they feeling unwell are they tired uh, you know is the is actually the text effect, really affecting them so that it's um difficult for them to sit still and concentrate because it doesn't you know it's not com- sitting comfortably for them or whatever it is so um, best not to worry about that just focus on the people who perhaps are giving you um, what you need or or what seems to be you know keeping the ball rolling or, or serving you, your own ability to enjoy telling the story mm-hmm. which is why we do it <laughs> So, Kate, we're about um, four days out from opening. Yeah, we are. Is everything on track? Yeah, look, it's great. It's a, it's always a very uh, quite stressful time as we are about to make the transfer from the rehearsal room into the theatre. So you're always short of time, even if you're doing a big commercial show and you've got three weeks to get it into the theatre or you've got three days. It's always going to be a time management um, project and there's always a lot of unknowns because you're going to see the lighting design for the first time. You're going to hear the sound in the space for the first time. The actor's going to be walking on the stage for the first time. Now we've been quite lucky. Um, our design is fairly spare, but we do have an object uh, that Jane interacts with and we've been able to have that in rehearsal for a couple of times. So that's allayed some of those transitional fears, shall we say. Um, 
The same with the music. Um, Nate's obviously working from New York, so we're working in very different time spans. Um, but he has a young assistant, Caitlin Crocker, who's a really gifted sound designer and also a composer in her own right. And they've worked together quite nicely to put the work together. Still got a long way to go, but we've been able to hear, you know, maybe 60% of the work in the room, which is always great because you're getting a sense of what it's going to be like. Um, yeah, and then of course, uh, the biggest uh, concern for me or where I really focus is obviously making sure that the actor makes that transition really uh, securely and that there's always going to be things that take you by surprise or um, yeah you're not expecting um, so my focus is very much on Jane to to make sure that that process is seamless as possible so your production is still evolving yeah, even totally. over over the next four days there will be yeah. changes made always probably, yes and, um, as, as those various components come yeah. together. And the change is exponential in these last few days or the last weeks um, as you get into the theatre. That's where all the change can happen. And I've often heard directors say, that's really where you direct the show. Because as the elements come in and they're interacting together and you want some sort of unified production, um, yeah, it's definitely evolving to the last minute. Things will be cut, things will be moved. Um, an actor might have to go faster or slower depending on um, how the elements work together. Um, and this is a little bit of an inside tip here for directors. If you need to change the staging or get rid of a prop or change a costume, this is the best time to do it because the actor's mind is so focused on that performance and being in that space that they forget all the dramas about why that prop has to be used or why the entrance has to be that way. And I always save my powder until this part of the production to make those really sticky changes where you don't really want to have a big discussion about it. You just want to get on and do it. So bump, bump in tomorrow. Bump in tomorrow, yes. We've had the advantage of being able to do some lighting pre-rigging because the Stables Theatre has been dark for some maintenance over January. So Becky was able to get in there with a the crew and get some lights up. We were able to get part of the set up um, we have some curtains at the back. So just simple things that she's going to be lighting. Um, it means that we're, you know, that much ahead. And what we'd be hoping to get to uh, tomorrow night is that we start looking at the lighting on the set um, as it will be for the show. Um, companies and, and performances are experiencing um, very tentative audiences yes. who aren't comfortable mm. in going back to uh, the theatre at present with the, 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 well, the current wave is mm. dissipating. Um, being an independent company, mm. your promotional budget would be quite small, I imagine. Um, how are you getting word out that the show is on and and pulling an audience in to, to see it? Yeah, look, I've always believed, um, ever since I started producing um, my own work, that um, publicity is something that I would always pay for. Um, it's not something that I want to get good at. I know I understand the principles, but to be a good publicist, you need to have a very live and vital, these days, email database. Um, so I always make sure that, I think I always prepare the marketing materials and then I always employ a publicist to, you know, engage with the press, such as it is now using inverted commas. There's no press, it's all online, whatever you call that, um, with reviewers. I have a very um, focused, uh, requirement for this show because we are making it for touring that we want to get some good reviews it means the critics don't all have to come on opening night for example because it's probably not going to make a massive difference to our audience in Sydney but it will make a lot of difference to the documentation that we have to on sell the show. I was very realistic with our publicist about what might be achievable in this COVID age because um, there are very few theatres open 
there isn't, hasn't been a huge appetite for people to come back to the theatre. And we were looking at what the impact of Sydney Festival might be. I think the bottom line is people want to come. They're deciding on the day. Um, and most theatres and producers are allowing a very flexible ticketing system. So if you decide you've bought a ticket for Thursday, but you actually think you might leave it a week, everyone's cool about changing those tickets. There's a focus on getting people back, making people feel safe and sending out as much information as people need to do that. So, yes, certainly our pre-sales are low, um, but I'm, I have a long game in mind. I do have a financial imperative, but the show will go on, um, pending no force majeure in the meantime, in the next three days. Um, <laughs> in terms of budgeting for that sort of thing, um, the publicist I usually find is the more expensive end of the scale because it's a human resource making the marketing materials does require budget but it obviously much smaller i mean what do we need we need some really strong hero images again research and planning is your friend there so that when you go in to do it it can be a minimal number of hours um, and you can strike a good deal with your photographer or your artist or however you're doing that um, there's a lot of graphic design you can do yourself now online um, but i also have a fantastic designer who does all the graphics and all the program and everything and I've used her for a number of years so we, we're in a bit of a stride there I know how to present the work so she can spend the bare minimum doing it um, to get the maximum you know the quality that we want um, yeah so that answers the question about budget I think so February 3rd yeah. is your opening night what are opening nights like for you I suppose it depends on the the experience you've had through the production process but are you generally cool as a cucumber yeah. or a stress head or I am now when yeah. I first started directing I was very nervous I I couldn't separate myself from the production somehow um, we will have had a preview on Wednesday night so we will have faced an audience I mean one preview isn't a lot but it's what we have in this small season um, that's always exciting because you really see the, the project in front of an audience and you really do see it with our eyes um, I don't fear the judgment of opening nights. I want people to have a great time. So I feel like I'm hosting a huge dinner party. Anne Bogart says there's no place for the director in the theatre once the show opens. You know, there's nowhere to hang your, hang your bag or, or, your, or your coat. And that's true because essentially I'm not required there by Thursday night. I'm not needed as part of the process to get the show on. I'm not needed in the theatre. And I find that quite comforting. Mm, mm. Mm. I don't fear judgment. I mean, if you're going to put yourself out there, you will be judged. Yep, yep. What can we do about that? Mm, mm. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's great that we're still doing it. I want to celebrate that. Uh, and it's a human industry, so uh, nerves are all part of it. Yeah. So Becky Russell, lighting designer, opening night. How did it go for you? I can't tell really. I never can at this point. There's always things I want to fix and do, but that's a perpetual thing. So <laughs> I think it can always be better. <laughs> but I think, but I, Kate was wonderful. Uh, sorry, Kate is always wonderful, but Jane was wonderful, I thought, and the audience was lovely and they were very welcoming. And so I think, yeah, I think, I think it went well. I think they really enjoyed it. There's a degree of numbness, isn't there, for a, a creative or an artist on opening night where... Uh, you're so focused on getting it right that um, 
it's, it's hard to think about anything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's hard. It's a, it takes a lot of practice, I think. And I try when I'm conscious that I'm actually focusing just on my part of the craft. It's like, hey, hey, there's an actor on stage. Maybe fo- pay attention to her. It's you've got to pull yourself back out again because you just keep working, especially because you work right up to the to the to the start point in an indie show when you've only got a few days in the venue. So it's yeah, it's a hard thing. You've got to keep reminding yourself, hey, you're seeing a show. You can't do anything about it. Step back. You can reflect on it later. <laughs> It's a beautiful lighting design. Um, Have a great season. Thank you very much. How did opening night go for you? It went well. It went well. I think uh, as with all shows and all development periods, you're kind of still finding your footing each night. So it was really exciting to have a full house and get to see how they responded to the show for the first time. What was it like working remotely with Nate Edmondson, the composer, who is in New York? It was great. So Nate and I composed together. So we're both like Nate has obviously worked throughout the other developments of the show, and I kind of got to come on board as like fresh, fresh eyes, fresh ears to this process. So it's been a lot of fun, and it's actually been quite great collaborating together. And it's been really interesting seeing where you know our ideas about the show sync up, and it's almost like even though we won't talk about specific instrumentation or whatever, uh, we've already aligned that in our heads, and it's great seeing it all come together. Well, it sounds great. The audience loved it. Um, Good luck with the season. Thank you. Thank you. So exciting. Are you ultimately happy with... Yeah, look, I'm thrilled with uh, seeing Jane work with an audience. I would come back every night to watch her engage with a different group of people because the more present she is, the less important everything else is except her, those words, and you. And that's what excites me about what she does. So, of course, uh, the art isn't complete without an audience. Thank God they're finally here. I mean, you're our second audience tonight. Last night was kind of hair-raising, but they were so warm and just really lovely, a lovely presence, because that's when you really see it. Um, Tonight, it was fascinating because... (laughs) It was fascinating because obviously lots of people, you know last minute can't come because they've been close contacts or they may have some symptoms and the, the box office really encourages people not to come, they will rebook the tickets but in our group, no, our designer was off for one week with COVID but that was fine, the design was made, he was able to brief people, it was fine So was it a, a smooth process do you think from, from beginning to end? It's never a smooth process <laughs> it's, it's a human process yeah. it's, never, it's never smooth because uh, humans, by our very nature, are uh, different and contrary, and we have different ideas. And the art of collaboration is to somehow incorporate all those ideas. I don't need this needs to settle now, so I need to not see it for a couple of performances. As a producer, I'm at the theatre all the time. I won't always see the show, and the mistakes will be the mistakes. They'll iron themselves out. Um, I have to step back now. I think when people see it uh, beyond this season, they're going to get a much finer show because, of course, what we wanted to do was to get this show up, to get it started. It's like a a, a Ferrari needs a lot of running in. We need to keep doing this a lot. So this is the start. It's not going to end in two weeks. Hopefully it'll be several years down the track and we're still doing it. And it will be a very different show then, but that's the long game that you have to play in the theatre. So 
Noel Januszewska, the birthing process is over. It was delivered tonight. It was. It's always a mixture of incredible excitement and um, terror when a new work opens. It must be um, constant wonderment about how it, it, will it represent the vision that you have when you first put pen to paper. Yes, and hopefully it'll be, will there be more because all the collaborators will have added their, um, their input and it will have evolved over the process of workshops and rehearsal. So the end result, the hope that the end result is everybody's, our joint vision for the piece. Do you have a favourite moment in the production? Um, no, I don't really. I don't. I think there are moments when I know things are coming and there are moments that are surprising and I love watching Jane making it her piece which is kind of nice to watch as she owns and takes possession of the work so no I don't actually have a single um, moment um, there are bits I like more than others but you know but that's true of everything so um, but no I'm very happy with it So Jane Fegan, it's a week after you closed the end of winter. How are you feeling and did it go all according to plan? I am feeling satisfied and relieved and also slightly exhausted. They're all wonderful things. It went very well, I think. I'm, um, I think the whole team is happy with how everything turned out. Uh, it certainly was a challenge and there were a few things uh, that were a bit spooky as we just before we went before we opened but uh, it it all went really well it was incredibly well received you got some good reviews we did get some good reviews and that's um, that's nice because they came before it was ready to be reviewed as always you know <laughs> opening night I don't know why we do that I was talking to someone recently Peter Cowitz actually about um, the fact that you know if in America, certainly on Broadway, probably not off Broadway, but you know, you have your sort of Outer town four months of mm. you know mm. <laughs> doing stuff before you before you have reviewers, and even they dribble in during previews, um, and then opening night is just for friends and family, and is just simply a sort of celebration of kicking off the season. And I thought that would be nice, wouldn't it? Mm. But that's okay. So I mean, yeah, we were really glad because. Obviously, we put all the work in previously, but it just feels so um, wonderfully, spookily tenuous on those first mo- in those first moments. You know, um, particularly if you don't have a week of previews or four months of previews. But um, very nice response, so great. Was there a highlight during the week? Something that stood out for you? Was I think what was striking for me was how different it felt each time. And um, I mean, that's of course we all know. Depending on who your audience is or how they're responding, that always changes things. But I, I think because it's direct address, that's all the more heightened in by the nature of this work. So um, I remember noticing that in the last show I did, but this time I think I was sort of struck by how how dif- how different audiences' responses were d- depending on. Uh, who made up that audience, you know, whether they were a vocal audience or just fu- the funny things where people laughed in places that I hadn't expected or it didn't feel like it had a, a really set way of being received, which was kind of exciting and fun. Mm-hmm.
So, Kate Gall, here we are the day after the final performance. Uh, thank you for allowing us, first of all, to uh, to follow the, the development and the evolution and, and journey of the production over the last month. Did it finish as you would have liked? I think um, I was pretty realistic about my expectations as a producer. I guess I can answer that question in two ways. I mean, as a producer... Uh, making a small independent show at the end of a number of lockdowns, one has to be realistic about the appetite for people to return to theatres, particularly in small venues. And certainly um, audiences have been slow to return to the theatre, but it's extremely important that we keep making theatre, otherwise they'll never return. And the people who did come said, often said how much they needed to be sitting in that space with other people to share that story. I mean, look, fortunately, the New South Wales government does have a package of support for venues and producers who don't meet their box office targets, which is going to be vital because it is a reality. Uh, money is a reality of this business. But certainly in terms of my expectations of launching the show, amassing the documentation that I need to take it further to other audiences on tour um, with great reviews, uh, great word of mouth, having had a number of venue uh, venue managers come and see the show and the documentation that we have that's really strong so we hit all of those targets and I'm very pleased with that because although the show closed in Sydney last night it won't be the last time that we do it so I have all the tools now that we need to take it into the marketplace across Australia that was great um, as a director yes of course I think every time a show goes on I have reached a, a goal um, you know I mean creating theatre is soul food we have to be engaging in ideas and emotions in a shared space. I think what I loved about the end of winter at the Stables Theatre, which of course is only 100 seats, is it's a small enough venue you can genuinely have conversations with people before the show or after the show. And it's really nice to hover in the foyer, even if I don't see the show, and engage with people. People want to talk about big issues. They want to be moved by stories they were hopeful that stories could change minds. Now, we're probably preaching to the converted at the moment, but it's we're mindful that stories are what uh, can change people's minds and attitudes to things like uh, climate change, um, that we can share grief and also celebrate our resilience, which is important. And I think the other thing uh, that I was reminded of after two years of not really having created anything for the public was the generosity of spirit that you get in the theatre, that behind Jane, she's one performer, but there's five or six of us there, you know, really every night, every day for her. And I was really uh, reminded of how beautiful that is, that, you know, you bring these people together and we become a tribe for the life of this show. And it's really important to all of us. And of course, having an audience is the cream on, cream on the cake, as they say. Yeah. Well, I think you've um, probably answered my final question. <laughs> Why do you continue to tell stories and make theatre? Look, I don't know what else to do, so it's too late to change. Um, <laughs> I, I am just very driven to, uh, you know, I guess working with other humans and inviting an audience into that space is what drives me every day. I used to, I remember as a very young person getting out of bed every morning and putting my feet on the floor and going, I can't wait to go to work, which was in the theatre. Um, I was just so excited by the prospects of what you can do together, the magic that you can create, the images that you can create. Um, so I'm still driven by that. The, uh, yeah, the beauty of that event. Um, yeah, it's transience, I think, uh, as a metaphor for all our lives. 
And as I say, it's good soul food. We need it. We need to be telling stories. Maybe they don't always have to be in the theatre. You know, we live in an age now where we're dominated by digital storytelling and we have so much visual storytelling at our fingertips. But there's definitely a place for the sitting around the campfire, whether it's, you know, at a major opera house or a very small theatre in King's Cross.